So, welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass, and joining me to help manage the questions is Grace Barnett from the Compass office. Hello, Grace. How are you? Hello, Neil. I'm fine, thank you. You're fine every week, which is good to hear. I'm glad to hear it's another week of being fine. These are unprecedented times, and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in. The conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join this great organisation today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this podcast. The virus impacts on everyone, but it impacts on them differently. Joining us this week to discuss the crisis and the future of progressive politics is the Green MP for Bryant Pavilion and longtime friend of, of Compass, Caroline Lucas. Caroline has been an inspiration for many of us, especially in Compass, not just because of what she says and does, but how. At Compass, we define 21st century leadership as being both humble and bold. And we think Caroline typifies both of those first as an MP and then as an MEP and then since 2010 as a Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion. And she's led on really important issues such as new democracy, new politics and the Green New Deal, but much else. The format will be that I'll ask Caroline a few questions and open it up to Compass members on the call for questions and comments before we finish within 60 minutes. Please keep any questions um, and comments brief so we can get as many people in as possible. And a Zoom etiquette demand should be kept on mute unless you're invited to speak. And please post any questions in the chat box, which you'll find on the bar at the bottom of the screen to the right of the mute button. If you want to tweet on this, the hashtag is it's complicated. And finally, just note that the conversation is being recorded so it can go out as a future podcast. So, Caroline, it's great to have you on the call tonight. Let's start with an easy one. Where are you and how are you? Thank you so much. I am all the better for seeing you, Neil. So thank you for this uh, opportunity. As you know, when I first came on the call, I was feeling a bit kind of ground down. Um, and I guess I would say that, well, I'm in Brighton, uh, obviously. Um, I'm at home in Brighton. And um, thankfully, my wonderful team are still active, albeit not, not with me, but, but scattered around the country. And they're doing an amazing job because quite honestly, the level of distress and anxiety and concern of people right now, whether that's because of their jobs, their businesses, their loved ones, you, you know, just the, just the level of, of concern now is, is, is massive. So there's an awful lot of, of dealing with, 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 a, with a lot of concern and a lot of worry. But we, and we'll get on to this later on, but there's also a lot to be hopeful for about as well. The crisis reveals both the horrors and the inequality, but it reveals the beauty. And we'll, we'll come on to that in a bit. So just give, just briefly, give people a bit of background, because they know you as the leader of the, the Green Party in the past, and they know you as a Green MP. Just, just walk through people through a bit of your you know, political career life, so they, they've got a bit more depth to it. Okay, so um, the turning point for me was reading a book in about, I think, 1986, by Jonathan Porrick called Seeing Green, um, and that changed my life really. So up until that point, I had been, um, I was living in Exeter, I was doing a PhD, and if anybody wants to ask me any questions about 16th century literary romance, I am your woman, so get, get them in the chat box. Um, uh, there I was sitting in my bed sitting clap and writing my PhD on 16th century romance, but I had been getting more and more 
involved in the women's movement, in the anti-nuclear movement in particular, uh, in the environment movement. And I was feeling that I was being kind of split into all different directions with all these different concerns and, and interests that I had. And then when I read this book by Jonathan Porritt, which is still worth a, a read, it is still extremely timely, unfortunately, in many we ways. Could put it in the, um, Grace or Jack, could we put it in the chat box, a link to it? Thank you. Carry on, Caroline. Uh, and when I read that, what I loved about it was that it brought together all of these things that I was concerned around, you know, whether that were the, the risk of, of, of nuclear war or nuclear accident, whether it was patriarchal society, whether it was uh, environmental damage, and it kind of put it together and made the connections between those different things and demonstrated that there was a political package, if you like, in terms of Green Party policy that could address it at root. And that was just such a relief apart from anything else, because it meant that I could just go to one meeting a week instead of about six meetings a week, because I could just go to the Green Party meeting and that would sort it out. <sighs> so I, um, I, I joined the party. I mean, I literally finished the book and on the next day I, I noticed that well, sorry, the same day that I finished the book, I noticed as I turned the page over that the um, Green Party office was in Clapham and there I was in my, in my bedsit in Clapham. So this was obviously meant to be. So I marched up and down the Clapham High Road looking for the large office with the brass plaque on the wall that I confidently expected to represent the Green Party. And I eventually found a kind of a, a you know, a, a tiny back room near a Chinese restaurant, I think. And that was the Green Party office. But I walked in and signed up. Um, fasting, fast forwarding, I, I worked for the party for a couple of years as their press officer. I managed to persuade them that the same skills that you need to talk about 16th century romance were very similar to selling the Green Party in the national media, so that went well. Uh, I was their press officer for two years. Uh, that was between 1987 and 1989. I do point out, mind you, that in 1987, I think the Green Party got 1.3% in the general election. In 1989, we got 15% in the European elections. Coincidence. <laughs> Case proven. Um, I got involved um, working in, as, as one of the um, members of the executive of the party. I worked for Oxfam for 10 years. Um, towards the end of working for Oxfam, the electoral system was changed uh, for the European elections, which meant that smaller parties like the Greens had a chance of getting a seat. So I stood in the European elections of 1999 and I won the seat by 251 votes. There were several recounts. Um, and went and served in the European Parliament for 10 years. And, um, and then, and then I, I came back to, to fight the Brighton seat. And, and thanks to so much work by so many people over so many years, I won the Brighton seat. And I've been doing that for just about 10 years. So, te so te I mean, you, you do an enormous amount. You know that I have got some feel for how much you do. I mean, you know, uh, and, have, you know, want to desperately help us do lots to people, lots of other progressives to try and get more green MPs there. But I mean, how do you manage to keep going and, and do so much with just, you know, you being the only member of the of, of the of, of the green parliamentary party? Well, that does speak to my amazing team that I that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's being really serious because they just multiply mm -hmm. my my impact, my, my work. They enable me to do what I do and and just you know just an amazing support team apart from anything else because it is bloody lonely i mean you know never mind bloody complicated it's bloody lonely <laughs> as the only green party mp and um yeah i mean it's fantastic now of course we've got natalie bennett as well as jenny jones in the house of lords so so there is now a bit of a team and that's made a big difference um but you know seriously it, it is it is just so 
frustrating that our electoral system is is so um, set against any kind of breakthrough from the kind of monopolistic uh, powers of, 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 the, of the main parties. And, you know, in 2015, a million people voted Green. A million people voted Green. That's amazing, given, you know, in the general election of that year, in spite of knowing, actually, the most of them, that their vote probably wouldn't translate into a seat. And yet a million people still went and did that. And yet we still only had one MP. So I, I just think it is grotesque in terms of its yeah. inequity and just the way that it makes people lose confidence in a, in a political system that doesn't reflect their views. Well, let's try and unpack that a bit, but let's unpack it through the lens of, I mean, you said what an effect the Jonathan Porritt book had on you. Well, let's just recount the effect that you've had on Compass. Because there were we with a very simple kind of theory of change that said, effectively, you know, you have an impact within the British Labour Party, the British Labour Party gets elected, and then, hey, presto, socialism. And then we bump into you in particular, but others from outside of Labour's ranks, and we find out that we agree with you um, more than we agree with many people in our party, and that we enjoy working with you, which challenge fundamentally um, our theory of change. And then we open things up to people from the Green Party, from Liberal Democrats, the SNP, you know, anyone who believes in our good society thing. And all of a sudden, the simple form of politics becomes bloody complicated. Um, but we're doing that so that, you know, so that we can unpack um, and unlock and unleash all of that, um, you know, political potential that's there and is being smothered and killed by that grotesque first-past-the-post um, system. I mean, you know, we're trying different things. What do we need to try more of and better of in order to unlock all of that kind of wonderful potential that's there? Well, first of all, real credit to you for, for basically, you know, broadening the, the, the membership of Compass. And I know that that was quite a brave thing to do at the time. It wasn't, you know, some people didn't want you to do that. And um, I'm very glad that you did because we've had a lot of fun along the way in terms of, of, you know, lots of those places we've been. I mean, it's been fun. Come on. It's been fun. You know, when we've had that sense, I think seriously of, of finding common ground between people that have come from very different political traditions actually is inspiring. And I genuinely believe what we've said before, i.e. that, that uh, there isn't a monopoly of wisdom by one party and that, um, that we all have different things to bring to the table and we can appreciate those, um, and I think, you know, when that actually manifests itself, it, it, it can be, yeah, it, it immensely exciting. And one of my experiences of, of doing that was working with Lisa Nandy um, from Labour and, and Chris Bowers uh, from the Liberal Democrats. And we put together a book with a lot of help from you called The Alternative. And, um, and it was a series of essays, but it was just so interesting to sit down. So, for example, sitting down with, with Lisa who represents Wigan, which is probably the polar opposite of, of Brighton in so many ways, <clears throat> and yet has very many similarities. But, you know, the question that she would always ask me whenever I was putting forward a, a proposal or a policy is, you know, how would you sell that at a, a Wigan working men's club, which is a test that I have not had to pose to myself before now in quite those terms. And in the same way as I could, you know, try and challenge her a little bit about what she was saying and, and and how that might be in, 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 in a community like, like the ones we have in Brighton. So I think there can be so much um, nourishment and, and genuine um, multiplication of, of, of wisdom by, by, by putting together different people with different ideas. And so 
I mean, I just love the way that the Compass provides a safe space to do that. And, and I think it is, I mean, safe spaces, I choose the words advisedly, because I think people do have to feel safe doing that and, and that they're not going to get shot down for, you know, consorting with the enemy as, as some would, would no doubt have it. So, I mean, I would just love you to keep, to keep doing that. Um, I know that you're very invested in, in work around um, the electoral system and the more that we can demonstrate that that isn't just party political special pleading, but it is actually about making a political system that's fit for the challenges of the 21st century. Because it seems to me that if we stay in the silos that we're in now, there is no way that we're going to meet the climate challenge or even necessarily the, the, the COVID challenge in the next in the next few weeks and months. We're, we're going to have to do things differently. And I love the fact that Compass has always been at the forefront of that debate and has never been scared of asking really difficult questions. And would you, and and it, it eventually that has to have an electoral kind of face to it and an, an electoral impact. I mean, I don't know what the format sh of that should be because we probably are. I mean, who knows? But we are probably four years away from the election. I mean, I mean, our strategy as it's evolving at the moment is work on the issues like basic income, green new deal, constitutional convention, PR, build relationships across the parties where you can around you know the vision of a good society. Um, and, and then develop the relationships and the trust and evolve an electoral strategy kind of out of that nearer the time. Do you think that's the, do you think that's the right approach? It's an approach um, yeah. and, and it's done very well. My worry is that we have, you know, fantastic discussions around basic income and around Green New Deal and we all agree on common ground and then an election gets called. And if we're not very careful, unless i mean you know let's let's call it as as it is that the, the thing that stops this happening is basically the way that the labor party is currently structured yeah um and so you can have all of this wonderful cross fertilization and then and then an election is called and all of that goes out the window and there can be no conversations not meaningful ones really about whether or not you know one party might stand aside for another whether or not there might be a common candidate standing for for, for two or three parties and all of that goes and so i suppose my one caveat to, to that way of working is that there's no guarantee even if you've got good relations on the ground and that is no doubt important and you need trust on the ground and you know getting together around those issues of common interest is a, is a great way of building that trust but unless finally we have a Labour Party leadership that will for example step back from the requirement that every single local Labour Party puts forward a candidate in every single election then I think we're going to be constantly coming up against that brick wall uh, Clive Lewis did a great job in the Labour leadership um, contest by by putting all of those issues, I think, on on the table. And I'm, I'm sorry that he that he you know had to had to sort of step out of that contest. Um, Keir Starmer has said, in, in principle at least, that he's he's happy to look at the issue of electoral reform. I can't say that it's the thing that's at the top of his agenda, but at least he's more open to it than perhaps previous leaders have been. And so I think at the same time as doing all of the um, the trust building and the common work on those issues where we where we do agree, I think we can't take our eye off the ball of, of actually how do we change that structure in the in the Labour Party nationally because unless we do, then I think we're going to have what happened in 2019 and then 2017 happening again in, in 2024. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree. There has to be an answer to that at the next election because we can't possibly go through um, uh, that again. Tell us something about how the Green Party's um, uh, uh, developing and what's its strategy you know, as its own distinct political entity in terms of trying to change the debate and maybe tell us a bit about the green steps 
initiative that you've um, that you've been put, putting forward and announced today that's a very kind opening thank you i wish you were on the today program that'd be that'd be so nice <laughs> um so to tell you about my green steps uh, initiative first of all i guess that comes from the place of recognizing that that as you said right at the beginning of this conversation that although obviously coronavirus is is a nightmare for so many people and you know i came across a, a really powerful phrase the other day that said that you know, we might all be weathering the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And mm -hmm. never has that been more true. And I think that, you know, the last few weeks and months have shone an incredibly bright spotlight on the difference between going through a set of experiences, you know, in, in, in a crowded, tiny flat with no access to the outside world versus, you know, having the, the luxury of being in a, in, a, in a home with a garden and, and, and some space or those people that do have internet access and those that don't. So, you know, recognizing, first of all, just, um, how this the, these set of weeks and months are affecting people differently very very differently but notwithstanding having having said that there is there is something very interesting about what's happening right now in the sense that to the extent that politics is the art of the possible and and, and we've always got to be pressing and pushing what what is possible what we've seen happen over the last few weeks and months from this government is quite extraordinary. I mean, things that we've been told for so long are utterly impossible have suddenly become possible. You know, the idea that NHS debt would be written off overnight, that industries would be more or less nationalized overnight, that the government would be paying the salaries of six million people more or less overnight, um, ha has been quite extraordinary. And the magic money tree has been found after all. It was always there down the bottom of the garden as we always told them that it, that it was. So on that sense, this, this sense of, the extent to, to which political failure has been a failure of imagination. I think all of us have had our imaginations massively stretched in, the, in, in, in recent times. And that's very exciting because it means we can imagine much more ambitious things and be much more bold about the demands that we make. And at the same time, I think we've, we've learned a huge amount about, about, about human nature. And it turns out that we are not the selfish, competitive, me first animals that we've been told that we are for, for, for you know, decades actually, but we are much more intrinsically cooperative and social, deeply social, how much it matters to us to be with other people, um, how much green space matters to us. So all of that is by way of saying that this, this Green Steps initiative that, that, that I've launched this week has been about seeing how we hang on to those things that we've learned about ourselves during the past weeks. And how do we use those to, to build steps towards the, the, the next crisis, the climate crisis? How do we come out of the coronavirus crisis in a way that we're already laying the foundations to put us in a better position to tackle the climate emergency? And by that, you know, so for example, step one uh, today was all about um, not bailing out, you know, the airline companies in an unconditional fashion, not bailing out the oil companies. How, how do we use public money right now in a way that, that builds for the different future that we need to see? And I think just tapping into that sense of, of, of hope and possibility that is there alongside all the grimness of, of, of the COVID-19 at the same time is, is what that's about. Fantastic. And, and if you haven't loaded up your questions in the chat thing, do so now because we're going to switch over to you in just a second. Um, but just tell us a bit about we've been, you know, together, we've been working on basic income, you know, for a while, but we've been stepping up recently. 
It's a big campaign for Compass. Tell us why you've all, I mean, you've always backed um, basic income, but why in the past, but why does it matter more now? I think it matters more now because I think people's insecurities that have been there for a very long time, the fragility of, of, of life for so many people in terms of having access to, 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 to basic needs, um, to, to the fulfillment of basic needs, that has never been clearer just how precarious people's lives are, many people's lives are, and how close so many people are to, to just not being able to put food on the, on the table the next day. And so this kind of radical insecurity, if you like, I think has come far higher up people's awareness. Um, and basic income, in a sense, is such a simple way of guaranteeing just that baseline of, of needs being met. And you know, it does a hundred other things as well in terms of allowing people's imaginations to flourish, imagining that, you know, giving them some, 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 some space and time to do things that aren't packaged up as jobs with salaries, but which are work, which are caring, which are things that need to be done in society, but which, you know, traditionally haven't necessarily been paid. But right now, I think what's, what's made it so important is we've seen how universal credit has been utterly unable to keep up with the changes in people's lives. You know, the fact that people are going to be in work, for a while then they may be out of work for a little while because you know because there might have been a lockdown again and then they might be back in work for a while and they might be combining a bit of work with a bit of you know doing something else and universal credit could never keep up even when we were leading lives that were much more straightforward the way in which coronavirus has just thrown all the cards in the air and made work so much more unpredictable uncertain means that we need something that guarantees that security that doesn't mean that you're waiting five weeks to even get hold of the finance. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, very randomly distributed in the sense that it's, that it's so conditional, you've got to meet all of these, 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 these um, uh, tests before you can get it. You know, why not have something that is, has the beauty and the simplicity of being universal? And of course, link that to a much more progressive tax system, but, but make sure that those people that need this basic security can get it. And if we can't guarantee that in the 21st century, I think that's, that's a sad indictment on us all. What a fantastic answer. And I think if we can load that up and put, and, and put all of that creativity, imagination, compassion and care that you just outlined, you know, then, then trying to do the electoral deal, it forces, hopefully it'll help force people into a position where do you want that future or not? And, you know, therefore, the Labour Party, will you really stand in the Isle of Wight and block people's ability to get a, a basic income, as you just described it, or a Green New Deal, you know, or a decent care system or whatever? If we can do that, um, then I think we might kind of, you know, get to the next election where people are prepared to play nicely together rather than fail apart. Anyway, um, that's enough of me. Grace, do you want to take over now and start? There's lots of people on the call because there are lots of questions. So let's get as many in as possible. And um, you're now um, in charge. Thank you, Grace. Yeah, okay. Using my highly scientific method to select the questions. I think we start with uh, Ron, who had a question about Progressive Alliance. So Ron Bede, if you can hear me, Ron, you, can, you should be able to speak now. Thank you very much, Grace. So I'm drawing a comparator between now and 1997, and as a Liberal Democrat, I'm no friend of uh, Labour's exceptionalism. But nevertheless, in 1997, we didn't need either formal or informal local or national deals to wipe away a long-term Tory government. And, I, and I'm wondering from what Caroline said earlier, why she thinks we have to do that now. 
um, especially since, bluntly, though I was very happy with the limited arrangements we had between Plaid, the Greens and ourselves, um, it didn't work too well last time. I think my answer to that would be, I mean, you're right, 1997, you know, worked pretty well within the terms that it, that it set itself, but of course, what wasn't part of that, you know, what was supposed to happen, as I understand it, would, would have been then that, that Labour would have brought in uh, electoral reform, and of course they didn't. So it feels to me that, um, that to have something that's more transparent, so that there is buy-in by people, is a better option if you can do it that way, rather than essentially doing it behind closed doors. I'm not saying that, you know, you, you rule out those conversations that are happening at the highest level um, and, you know, so you probably have agreements whereby in different seats there'll be fewer resources put and, and, and those conversations, you know, are still happening. But I would have just thought that there's so much more to be gained if you can by actually making the case, making the case to say that, um, that we do have certain things in common and that, and that, um, that this is a positive thing to do in its own right and that it's more transparent and therefore you've got more buy-in and there's a greater debate about what progressive politics looks like rather than something that can rather easily be looked like, you know, you're just kind of tying things up behind closed doors. So that's my preference for saying that I would rather it was out in the open and there was debate about it. Um, but if we can't have that, then, then, you know, maybe there are still going to be conversations going on behind closed doors, but I would much rather it was open. And just to come in very quickly, Ron, I was involved in the negotiations in 1997 and Labour and the Liberal Democrats carved up every seat across the country. They didn't stand candidates down, but they decided on which, where they were going to concentrate their campaigning efforts um, for maximum effect. And it worked really well with an overarching kind of dialogue between Blair and Ashdown, between Robin Cook and, and, and McClellan. It was all very carefully orchestrated and, and that worked. And it was a, the decision in 97 was a, a Tory versus not Tory election. And even if we got to that, then I think it would be in a much better position as long as Caroline got more colleagues into the House of Commons and that method as well. But what didn't happen though, is that we didn't get any long lasting structural change to the system. So there was nothing to say that, you know, in future, you wouldn't have to do that all over again. And, and I suppose that's why I'm just trying to hold out for saying, let's have the debate about changing the system and make sure that we can hold whoever does win the election to account so that they will then yeah. do that. And that's why PR has to be a non-negotiable in that. Exactly. In that All right. Um, sticking with the Alliance theme, I think Chris Neal had quite a good question about that. Chris, can you hear us? Um, uh, thanks. So, so my question is um, that if we're going to emerge from the COVID crisis with a progress progressive programme, so including things like a Green New Deal, universal basic income, programme citizens assemblies, um, do we need an alliance not only between political parties, but also between pressure groups and NGOs? So, the, so my question is really about there, there being a lot of ideas and thought about uh, people, about how society needs to change now. Do all those groups need to get together for a common platform and push hard together now? I think that's a really interesting question. <clears throat> and I would have a lot of sympathy with that because I'm sort of haunted by what happened after the financial crash. You know, we had a lot of conversations going on between lots of different groups, you know, lots of agreement between them about how, you know, we should not have years of austerity to come and how this was the moment for the Green New Deal. I was at that point involved in, in, in the 
small group that was leading the whole process back then around the Green New Deal. And if we're honest about it, we failed. You know, we had 10 years of austerity and we didn't change the narrative and we can't afford to let that happen again. And so it feels to me that just as coronavirus has thrown up so many other, you know, bedrocks of what we thought was possible and not possible, it needs to throw up what's possible and not possible when it comes to NGOs working together. And one of my frustrations, and maybe I'm allowed to say this having worked for, for an NGO myself for, for nearly 10 years, is is just that it is so difficult for NGOs to properly work together. And I understand in some senses why, because there are fundraising targets and to some extent, you know, Oxfam is in competition with Save the Children and Friends of the Earth is in competition with Greenpeace. But at the end of the day, we have got to raise our ambition. We have got to be bolder. And I am so, I'm gonna be very honest about this. I am so frustrated actually, that so many NGOs now for fundraising reasons, no doubt, basically pitch themselves to the lowest common denominator so that they can present themselves as having won some things and they can go back to their, to their membership or to their supporters and say, look, we've won this or we've won that. And no one's ever actually asking, is what you've won actually really going to change anything very much? Or have you just ticked a box and therefore, you know, you think you've got a letter that you can go back to your, to your supporters with? So I would love to, to really issue a challenge to the NGOs and to say, please be bolder, please be more ambitious, please push against the charity commissioners. You know, there's all this stuff about the, the bill that came in that I understand has constrained what, what NGOs can do when it comes to stepping into the political space. And, and, I, and I understand how difficult that is, but you know, I think NGOs have got a hell of a lot more power than they sometimes think they have. And that by working together to challenge some of that stuff, what are they going to do? They can't, they can't sort of block you all up. It just feels that we are now at such a moment of, of such importance that is not going to come again. You know, we will not forgive ourselves if we squander this moment. It feels, it feels really so, so vital. And so I think we need to throw away some of the old shibboleths and, and things that have made us, you know, think that we can't do things in certain ways and just be bolder. And yes, I would love to see us all coming together under some big heading and I know Compass is doing some work on this, you know, that everybody's using that phrase, build back better. And people have come across it from different angles and routes, but, but it does kind of sum up what we're saying, which is that we cannot go back to how things were, were before because the way things were before was intolerable for so many people and it was screwing up the planet. So, you know, if we, if we, don't, if we don't grab this moment and do things differently now, then I don't think our kids would ever Forgive us. <laughs> um, I think that, so Francesca Klug has a question which leads in quite nicely to what you're talking about. Francesca, are you still there? Yes, yes, I'm still there. Uh, great to see you, Caroline, and to listen to you. Thanks very much. Um, my question is, despite the ongoing reach of populists and extreme nationalists, do you think the COVID crisis provides an opportunity to remake the case for global cooperation and the vital interconnectedness of human beings across the world. I think it absolutely can and, and, and must. It's perfectly obvious that if it, if it is still alive and kicking in one part of the world, then we can try to put up as many barriers as we like around us, but that isn't going to work because, because all of us will be that much more vulnerable and that much weaker if we are not addressing wherever that virus is. So in a sense, what I'm 
saying not very clearly is that I think that the virus is, 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 is a metaphor of demonstrating how interconnected we are and, and points to the fact that, um, you know, even, even if we thought it was the right thing to do and the best thing to do, we, 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 we cannot tackle the big challenges we face today on our own. Nice answer. Um, okay, so I think maybe moving on now, some people were asking about UBI specifically. Uh, Georgia, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, would you like to ask your question? Yes, I was wondering, and in fact, it goes towards, there's a question that someone asked Lee Baker to, um, to get an answer for as well, which um, it's about this issue that people are always saying that UBI is just, um, you know, a handout and people being paid for doing nothing. And I wondered whether it could be thought of more as a share of our national prosperity and income that we're entitled to, and also, you know, managing the risks overall in the long term. I always think it, it, it reflects quite in quite an interesting way on, on, on people's estimation of what, what our fellow humans are like. We always seem to assume that, that everyone else is kind of a layabout. Uh, we're not ourselves, obviously, but kind of everyone else is. Um, and from the pilots, and I appreciate the fact that we haven't had that many pilots yet for that much time, but nonetheless, all of the pilots of, 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 of UBI don't demonstrate that people just give up and, and, and don't want to work. And I think, you know, what we've seen from the last few weeks reinforces the fact that many of us find a lot of meaning in the interactions that we have when we are working alongside one, in, one another. And I think, you know, the vast majority of people will not want to give that up. And if some of them do, then well, so be it. You know, maybe, maybe there's a good reason that they need to, you know, hang out and do something else for, 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 for a couple of years. To me, that's not an argument for, for not going down the route of UBI, because I think, the, the, the benefits for the vast, vast majority of people in terms of guaranteeing that baseline of security and of enabling people to have a far greater choice in what they choose to do it is so much greater than, than any fear that, that, that somehow when we're, we're yeah, going to be promoting a kind of culture of, of, of mass stupor or, or, or laziness, stupor or laziness. I think it just doesn't, doesn't add up to me. I liked what you said about you know, can we see it as, as something that we have a, a right to in effect? And I think obviously there are very many different um, ideas about how you would pay for a, for a basic income, but to the extent that some of it might be related to some kind of sovereign wealth fund that's been linked to, uh, you know, the, 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 the profits of the oil companies, or, or, or if it was linked in some way to, to, to paying for, for carbon emissions, you know, one could see a way of, of, of presenting uh, basic income in, in, in a very real way that would demonstrate that it is, in a sense, our birthright. That basic security is something that we all have a right to share. So there was another question about UBI, which was quite similar. So hopefully that answered both of them. I think it did. Um, let's see who's next. Okay, Jude Bloomfield had a question about sort of what happens after the crisis, so to speak. Jude, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, how can we ensure that when we come out of this crisis that we can impose environmental, not green, but also social and feminist caring and cultural priorities on investment decisions um, so that not, not only universal basic income but also um, 
a kind of green and feminist and social and cultural notion of innovation and decentralised form of public infrastructure. So addressing a whole range of inequalities in, in major investment decisions which will be coming. I think one way of answering that is actually to make reference to a report that was in the news today that's um, been put together by Nicholas Stern, who did the Stern Review into Climate Change and, and uh, Joseph Stieglitz. And what they were looking at was um, the economic benefits of coming out of a depression or a recession through investing in the green economy. And what they showed was that irrespective of the fact that from my point of view, and most people I'm sure on this call point of view, you know, irrespective of the fact that we would want to see investment in, in, in environmental outcomes because we care deeply about the environment, even if that was not your concern, what this new report from Oxford shows is that investing in the green economy is the fastest, most effective way of getting us out of an economic crisis. In other words, it produces hundreds of thousands of jobs right across the country. So you could imagine you know, a mass program of insulation, insulating the 27 million homes in this country that, that need it. And that would be a way of getting people's climate emissions down, but it would also tick the social box because it would mean that their fuel bills were coming down. And it would also create jobs in every single constituency around the country. So I think you can kind of flip the argument a little bit as this, as this report did. And, and if we can demonstrate that calling for investment in, in green and social um, outcomes is not only kind of special pleading for those of us who, who care about those out outcomes, but they make the best sense in economic terms also, then we've got our best chance of, of achieving the, the ends that you describe. Because so many of the kinds of things that we need, like the insulation program, are so-called shovel-ready. You know, they're not the massive infrastructure investments like HS2, for example, which alongside all of its many other disbenefits, you know, is massively slow, um, much less labor intensive than, you know, some of the um, public transport alternatives that would be much more about localized transport and so forth. Mm. So I think argue it back in, in their own terms can be one way of, of, of trying to ensure that we, that we have a, the best chance that we can of, of coming out of this crisis in a way that does mean that we have that social and environmental investment that you describe. Okay, um, jumping around a bit now. Have some easy ones. These are really hard. Yeah, sorry. They're all really detailed questions today. Um, normally at least there's one easy one, but not, not today. Um, okay, there's someone who's coming up as Bill and Shan. So it's either Bill or Shan, I'm guessing. Um, are you there, Bill or Shan? Yes, yeah. Yes. Hello. Um, would you like to ask your question? Thank you. Um, yeah, there's some discussion about the best way to get the green message across locally. Um, we're in a very Tory dominated area. One view is to is that we should show what good works we do and be positive and not quote shame the Tories. Um, the other view is that we should explain or ram home that Tory policy is what's creating the problems. What do you feel we should do? <laughs> Hope that's easier. Uh, well, it's easier in the sense that, that I'm, I'm not going to answer it in the way that you want me to, because um, to, to me, I, I don't see why there has to be a choice between those two strategies. Um, I, I'm sure it is important to demonstrate the common sense of our approach and our policies by, 
by doing it in action. And so in localities where we have local councillors or where we have, you know, strong Green Party communities, then, then absolutely, you know, showing by doing is, is incredibly important and that, that makes its case. But unless we're going to tackle the root causes of lots of the social and environmental harms we see in society, um, and a lot of that comes down to wrong policymaking in, in our view, bad policymaking by, by the Tories, then we're not going to actually make those structural changes. So to me, I, I just don't see it's an either or. I think you need to be doing both, which I suspect is not a very helpful answer, but it's what I, what I believe. Okay, I think I found you an easier one, an easy one, so to speak. Um, Jonathan Evans had quite a sort of good question, I thought, an interesting question. If you can hear me, Jonathan. Yes, I can, yes. Um, thank you very much uh, for, uh, for, for your contributions, Mike Caroline. Um, to, to what extent is the political context in Wales different to that of England? And uh, what is the uh, Green Party strategy uh, in Wales? <laughs> And that was the easy question, thank you. Um, <laughs> we are a very decentralised party. We have a leader of the Welsh Green Party uh, and I would be mindful of treading on, on, their, on their toes on that. So, so very seriously, um, the Welsh Green Party, the Green Party in, in Wales, you know, does have an awful lot of autonomy and doubtless has a different strategy uh, than the rest of us in, in, in England. But I guess I would answer your question by saying that my sense of it is that Wales is, is very different. I mean, it has a different set of, of realities on the ground. It has a, a, a Labour government in the uh, Welsh Assembly. Uh, it has uh, another party that is, I would say, and I might be about to be attacked by all of the Welsh members on, on the chat, but, but, but is, you know, probably closer to us than, than most other parties in the, in the, in the sense of Plaid Cymru. And that brings all kinds of different um, choices and, and opportunities uh, and no doubt risks as well in terms of, of setting out the political strategy in, in, in Wales. So to be very honest, I, I don't feel very confident in telling you exactly what the Welsh Green Party strategy is. Um, what I can tell you is about, about what I know much more, which is the, the strategy in, in, in England where we are you know, doing our best um, at every single local elections to, to target to win, to, to get more Greens on um, more councils uh, in, in the best way that we possibly can. And, and that generally speaking means accentuating the, the difference that Greens can make. So at the last election, we talked a lot about the difference one Green in a, in a room makes, just one Green on a, on a local council, we, uh, we, would, we would make the case, C can make a difference, a real difference by at the very least, asking a different set of questions. Um, you know, what one green on a council, I know from my own experience, I was a lone county councillor in Oxfordshire uh, for, for, for a number of years. Um, and sadly, you know, plenty of votes went 60 in favour and one against, um, uh, and that was me. Uh, but nonetheless, I felt that I was able to bring things to the table that the other parties weren't. And I think, I think that has to be part of our strategy to demonstrate the additionality of having a green voice in the room. And of course, this is a very topical question to be, to be considering given that I think it was Thursday of this week where we would have been having the local elections, uh, we would have been having the um, assembly elections where, where the London assembly elections where, where Sean Berry, our, our candidate there, you know, had a really strong chance of, of really bringing a, a, a set of different 
concerns and issues to the table there and, and, and is really building on, on massive support there with her work on working with people on in, in rented accommodation in particular, on transport issues in, in, in London and so on. So yeah, I guess I'm simply saying that, that the strategy depends on, on where you are and, and, and from my perspective, the situation in Wales is, is, is not the same as the one in England. Right. Cross people now in, in the chat saying, how dare you say that? <laughs> Can't see. There's always going to be someone cross in the chat. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Liz. Liz had a question about um, deliberative democracy. Can you hear me, Liz? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi, Caroline. Hiya. Um, yes, Caroline, I just was interested in your view around um, citizens' assemblies. There's, there's been increasing... Um, involvement of citizens assemblies around climate emergency and there's a national one at the moment but I'm just thinking about the way you're bringing together both the post-COVID response and also how do we build the foundations to, to come out of the climate crisis and um, how to involve citizens in those in those conversations um, both locally nationally and even the, this call for a, um, a global citizens assembly around that and I'd just be interested in your views on how do we engage citizens in this in shaping decisions that are going to be impacting on all our lives and making sure that all aspects of society are included in that conversation? Well, thank you for that question. And, and I completely um, support uh, citizens' assemblies. I think that they have an incredibly important role to play. And I felt very privileged to go to the first um, weekend of the of the uh, climate citizens' assembly, the, the, the national one, and, and to and to watch just how um, engaged people were. And it, what I came away with was just how, how much people appreciated the opportunity of, of, of being able to contribute to decision-making and to have their voices heard. Um, I think it's gonna be even more important as we move forward in the sense that many of the choices that we're going to have to make in the coming weeks and months are going to be incredibly difficult ones. And some, choices will have trade-offs and if we're going to bring the public with us then then I think it's absolutely right that that that, that a wider group of people have a much more direct input into into decision making I think it makes for better decisions I think it means that you've got a much better chance of having broader consent in the in the in the in the in the, in the public in the country in order to, to to take those decisions but I also think interestingly that it will help us make more bold and ambitious decisions. I've been so struck by really by and large how cowardly governments are and how they underestimate what the public is 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 happy to do and, and what they want to do. I mean it was perfectly illustrated just in these past few weeks wasn't it when you know apparently all of these experts in nudge at number 10 were telling Boris Johnson and you can't possibly lock down people won't won't accept it. Well, in actual fact, people were locking down far before Boris was asking them to because they could see this bloody virus on the, on the horizon and they were taking their own steps and, and using their own judgments and just doing it. Um, from what I've seen from the outcomes of citizens' assemblies so far, well, by and large, you know, people, and obviously bearing in mind that the, the, the citizens' assembly is, is more or less proportional in terms of people when it comes to climate change who who want bold action and those who don't when they go into that room, by, by the end of it, by and large, the, the proposals that they're coming out with are far bolder than anything that government is coming up with. So I think that in the interests of more ambitious policy making and of, um, and of policy making that has the consent of, 
of, of the population, then, then citizens' assemblies are the way to go. And I'm, I'm quite involved in a process that we're trying to get up and running to have a, a constitutional convention that will be built on, on similar lines that will be discussing what kind of settlement we need in our, in our political system today. Okay, to bring it all the way back to where we started, um, Sue had a question about the Progressive Alliance again, um, which we haven't covered yet. Sue, can you hear me? Can. Hello. I asked if where there is narrow margins between parties, instead of standing down, have a Progressive Alliance candidate? Um, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the reason I'm, I'm um, uh, standing slightly uh, ambiguous about it is, is I don't want us to lose the specificity and the value that each of our different political traditions brings. So my preference, if there was a way to do it, would be to still keep some seats having more green standing, some having more Labour, some having more Lib Dem, Plaid, whatever, and, and then making a government out of, of, of the best of all of those, in a sense. So that would still be my first preference, rather than feeling that right from the start, we've kind of potentially gone to the lowest common denominator between them by coming up with a candidate who kind of fulfills all of those. Which is not to say that I don't think, you know, if, if, if that was the option, and that was the only option versus the status quo, then I would certainly support it. Absolutely. And I, I think you would have to do it in such a way that, you know, maybe in one, in one seat, the Progressive Alliance candidate would be a Green, and you might have to identify a certain number of seats that, that the Greens would, would be able to be that candidate. And, and similarly for, for other parties. My worry is otherwise, and I, I'm making a special pleading for the Greens here, but, but, but because being the smallest party probably in these discussions, um, if we're not careful, if it's just literally left to people to vote for who they think should be that candidate, if people are still voting on party lines, then, then we still don't get more Greens elected. So that's a roundabout way of saying that it's something that I would certainly be prepared to look at, but I think it just depends how you design it to make sure that you, you do end up with an outcome that maximizes the diversity of different voices and different traditions, I suppose that's what I mean as well. Uh, which is, as you started with the beginning of the conversation, Caroline, sort of absolutely essential to a 21st century politics, that, that bringing together diverse thoughts, experiences, histories, etc. Because, I mean, that's why we've called this kind of series, It's Bloody Complicated, because it is. And you can only meet the complexity of the world by an equally complex form of politics, which can think through all the, the angles and work our way, you know, work our way through all the angles in all of their beautiful um, complexity. And, you know, someone said that the, the Liberal Democrat, I think it was Ron at the beginning, said that, you know, he dislikes Labour's exceptionalism. Well, I'm a member of the Labour Party and I dislike Labour's exceptionalism because it can't possibly answer all of the, all of the questions. Um, I'm going to ask you one, one uh, the, the question that we ask everyone at the end, um, but to say thank you so much for your time and your passion um, and your energy. You never ever disappoint and you haven't done tonight. So thank you very much for that. I'm sure everyone got an awful lot out of that. So let's finish with the, with the, you know, the one that we always end up with, with where does hope come from? Because despite, you know, the problems of first past the post, despite, you know, the way that the conservatives managed to shape shift into um, new positions with almost kind of breathless arrogance, um, despite COVID, 
um, despite the you know the the, the problems of Brexit. Our politics is essentially one based on hope. Um, what keeps you going? What gets you out of bed? What keeps you you know keep, what keeps you going? What inspires you? Um, you know to to believe that something better is not just possible but both desirable and feasible. Well, partly because I think we've got the best people on our side, if you like. I mean, it is just the, the, the community of, 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 you know, the, the, the team that I work with, the, the, you know, yourselves, Compass, and so many other of the organizations in this space. Um, just, just seeing the, the endless creativity that comes from that is, is incredibly inspiring. I think young people right now are massively inspiring. We've not talked about the, um, about the, the climate strikers and the youth climate strikes. You know, I think, I think that was just so powerful. I think there's something very special about a young person kind of looking my generation in the eyes and saying, you know, you are screwing up my future. And that is kind of unanswerable. So I, I think the willingness of young people just to get out there and, and be uncompromising in their demands, I think gives me a, a huge amount of hope. And I guess the other thing just on a very personal level is, um, is just, is, is, is about nature and, um, you know, I, people have talked about the different things that they're doing in lockdown that they've that they've um, not done before. And I can't say that I've been, you know, doing loads of gardening or baking or anything very useful. Uh, but what I have been doing is trying to attract swifts to my garden. We've got a swift box and and I've become absolutely obsessed with swifts. I mean, did you know, Neil, that a swift, a single swift about that big can fly over a million miles in its life? Isn't that extraordinary? That big and it, and it knows to come back to the same swift box. So Overnight, you can see me in my garden playing the sounds of swift calls, hoping that I'm going to be able to attract one of these swifts into my swift box and feeling just so, so truly grateful for nature because however much we're screwing everything else up at the minute, thankfully, um, you know, people are recognising just how important green spaces and nature is to us. Well, that's an awful lot more inspiring than John Harris, who was going to play his banjo, which is, he's been learning <laughs> during uh, a lockdown. So I think you've beaten John Harris. Um, Caroline, you've been uh, fantastic tonight. And so has all of the questions and all the contributions. Well done, Grace, for getting so many in. Um, it's your supporters, Compass members, that enable us to do this kind of event and all the thinking, policy and campaign work we do. Um, if you're on the podcast, and want to be part of our much more equal demo democratic and sustainable future then join us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast you can tweet me at neil underscore compass or compass at compass office and if you've joined if you've enjoyed the podcast please give us a rating so that more people out there can find out that it's bloody complicated next week we'll be joined by the liberal democrat mp Leila moran to discuss a different angle on collaborative politics and the future of the Liberal Democrats and how we hashtag build back better. As usual, I can't wait. Once again, and for the last time, thank you so much, Caroline. Thanks all of you. Please keep safe, keep well, um, and let's keep building for this better politics. Thanks a lot. Take care. Good night. Thanks so much. <laughs>